Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod number 80. We've now reached our eighth decade. Was it ninth? I can never remember how these things work. But we are getting rather old. We, we are. 80 not out. Um, it's yeah, pretty, pretty, that, that, pretty good score. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and makes us wonder how we should celebrate our centenary. No, 20 to go. Yes. It could take us a little while, but we'll get there in the end. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is um, the home team again. We have Jane. Hello. We have Michael. Hi. And uh, myself, Graham Tomlin. And uh, we are here to um, discuss various questions on um, God, theology, life and everything else. And uh, as always, if you can email in our questions, you can see the email address on the website. That would be great. Um, so um, the first one we have today is from uh, Nathaniel Gillett, or Nat Gillett, as he calls himself, from South London. He says um, he actually quite enjoyed our Godpod on aliens. Good heavens. Do you remember that one? No. <laughs> <laughs> but then we've got a question on memory coming up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't listened to the Godpod on aliens, it's number 77, so you might want to go back on the website and look at number 77. Well, perhaps we ought to. Where we discuss uh, are there aliens out there or are there aliens on the Godpod team? Oh, actually, I do remember this, yes. yes. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, um, the question is, here's, uh, Nat says um, he's asked a few people this question, various vicars and so on, but struggle to get an answer that's satisfactory. So he's hopefully hopeful that he's going to get one of us. <laughs> I'm sure we can add unsatisfactory answers. Poor deluded fool. <laughs> so the question is, I accept that the New Testament is probably the best source of early Christian literature that we have, and thus it has authority for us if we're trying to work out what Christianity should look like. But how do you make the leap between that view of the New Testament as early Christian literature and the doctrine that the New Testament is God's word? So there's the question. So how do you jump from the New Testament as a useful source of information and historical background about early Christian beliefs to saying that it is God's word. And I suppose related to that is the question of why do we view these particular documents as God's word, whereas there are other documents of the first century and second century, the Shepherd of Hermas, um, Didache and others that we don't think of as, as God's word in quite the same way. I mean, one of my answers or the start of start of my response is, is as, as I, and I teach early church doctrine so one of the courses i teach is is actually looking at how um that what we now call the canon of scripture um came to us Uh, and it didn't come you know uh, ready-made plonked all across the world at the same time it actually came complete with maps as michael ramsey used to say (laughs) leather bound complete with maps um you can actually see uh the earliest christians um, sort of gradually coalescing around these texts. So th- there is this sense, not that um, uh, people sat down and thought, well, now, which are the best ones, but the, the, uh, this sense that people um, all across the Christian world began to find that, as a matter of fact, they were using the same um, write the writings over and over and over again, that these were the ones that were forming people, that were encouraging people, that were challenging people. Um, and this, as a matter of fact... Funnily enough, they found that, um, you know, from Antioch to Alexandria to Rome to wherever, these were the texts, um, the documents, that the the, um, the materials that actually seemed to be given. 
And I think there was also uh, one of the criteria that was used in that process was, are these texts in a position to tell us what happened uh, yes. historically? Yes, were they witnesses? Uh, and yeah. therefore, the reason that we treat the New Testament as authoritative is not primarily because it's anything particular in itself, particularly fine form of literature or uh, anything like that, or particularly even particularly full of religious insight. It's because they are in a position to tell us about a particularly special set of events. Mm. Uh, the authority lies ultimately in the revelation of God in Christ. If it is true that God lived a human life on earth um, amongst the dusty lanes of Palestine, um, then these documents are in a position to tell us what happened when he did. Mm. And that's why they're authoritative, not because of anything in themselves, mm. um, not because we're setting up this document over that you know, document, but because this can tell us what happened. Uh, so there's a historical window mm. on a historical event, or what is claimed to be a historical event, mm. um, and, and that's, that's the authoritative thing. And there's a, yes, that, that does highlight quite an important distinction, I think, in theology which is between revelation and scripture and it says that primary revelation seems to me is what is what happened in the history of israel in the person of christ hmm. scripture is if you like the the authoritative interpretation of that well access revelation. to and interpretation yeah. of isn't it it's, it's exactly, what gives yeah. us access to and it, it well, and it sort of shares in the revelatory character of those events yes. so it's not a separate thing from the events the event would not be the same. It would not be itself without that interpretation, without that authoritative interpretation, which tells us what the meaning of the death of Christ outside the walls of Jerusalem in AD 33 or whatever it was, what that actually meant. Without an authoritative interpretation, you, could, you wouldn't know what on earth that event happened to mean. And I, think, I think the other thing about the, those, those documents is that it seems to me that the, what the early church did was not so much to confer authority on them. It's not as if the church decided oh, well, we, like, we are the like these documents and we'll say that they are now the word of God but it's more that they recognized a quality that, that that these documents had that other ones didn't and so what that process of coalescing that you were talking about Jane is about it's the, is, is the church reading these documents over and over again alongside other ones as well and, and gradually coming to a recognition that these particular documents had a, a quality to them which was over and above just a human writing it was something that carried something else and and part of the process of that was was just the common use the fact they kept on being used um and the other documents that might have seemed quite flashy and interesting to begin with actually in time were found to be lacking in depth lacking in this essential quality um this revelatory quality that, that we've been talking about which is why it seems to be so important that the the, the, the canon of scripture was it took quite a quite a long time to to discover it and to kind of to, to define it. It was almost be sort of slightly less believable if the church decided in about the year hundred, right? Okay, we sorted it out. These are the ones that that get in, and these are the ones that don't. It almost needed that process of time where the church was actually testing out which of these documents carry that divine revelatory character and which which don't. And I think the offshoot offshoot of that is that <clears throat> if somebody doesn't particularly you know not, not a christian doesn't come with any particular christian belief you know don't try to work up a kind of belief in the authority of scripture to start with just treat them as historical documents and and but then see what they are about and look at that uh, just treat them as ordinary historical documents 
and but see what they're pointing to. And, and it seems to me that when when you do that, you're confronted with the person of Christ and what he's like, uh, and and the attractiveness if of God, if God is like that, if God is Christ-like, um, and then confronted with the evidence for the, for the resurrection and that sort of thing. And, and it is through that, through seeing the authority and the beauty of that, that one comes to have an increasing respect for the documents that offer you that, open that up to you, unlock that for you. So in the fourth century, when Athanasius is writing to his churches about what they should use in worship and use to, to grow their own faith, he says it's absolutely fine to read other Christian writings. Um, they won't do you any harm, but these are the ones um, that actually, uh, the phrase Karl Barth used much later was, these are the ones that have, as a matter of fact, have imposed themselves oh, upon us. Oh, yeah. um, uh, and so uh, the others sort of fall into place around them, around this central witnessing testimony. Mm. Well, it is possible, isn't it? I mean, this idea that they are God's word, how can they be God's word as well as being human words? Because someone says they are deeply human documents mm-hmm. written by ordinary people. And, and different people with different styles yeah, and different exactly. concerns. That's right. But it is, we, we can conceive of a document which is written by one person and yet carries the authority of another. And this is an illustration, I think, that um, Nicholas Voltishtoff, the, the American theologian, uses. I mean, I, I, mean, I have a, a very good... PA who who works very closely with me she knows me quite quite well uh, and on occasion I'll ask her to write an email or write a letter uh, on my behalf and she will write that out and she knows my sort of style but she'll write it and um, uh, she'll give me the letter I'll sign it at the bottom and off it goes now who has written that letter she has I haven't written it but it still carries my authority because it has my signature at the bottom because it conveys my mind it conveys what I think, it conveys what I want to say. And so we can conceive of that dynamic whereby something can be written by one person and yet carry the authority of another. And it seems to be something like that is happening within within Scripture. So we don't have to think of the New Testament as being sort of dictated in some sort of automatic way to the to the writers of the, of the Bible as if they were in some sort of trance when they wrote it. No, they wrote them, you know, St. Paul, I imagine, just sat down and wrote his letters like he would have done like you and I would have written letters. And, but. Uh, and that's important because <clears throat> God is not the sort of God who invades us and takes us over. He's the sort of God who enables us to be fully ourselves uh, and works through us that way. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's that's an important glimpse into how God works. He doesn't dictate. He's not a dictator. He doesn't dictate a letter. Hmm. He, I like that. That's quite good. Yeah. He doesn't dictate. He's not a dictator. Hmm. Hmm. Very good. And then another little bon mot. Bon mot, please. <laughs> That's right. Very good. Well, um, thank you for that question, Nat. Um, and uh, we move on to another question now from um, Alfred, Alfred Latham. He doesn't tell us where he comes from. Um, actually, no, he does. He says he's from Cheshire. There you are. He is a retired academic in geology and archaeology, but with a keen interest in theology. And he has a question here about... Um, uh, an aspect of Christian faith, which is the doctrine of atonement. And the question is um, this. I've always had difficulties in accepting that Jesus paid for our sins when those sins are usually counted as against God. The fact is that God is not the victim of wrongs, but our neighbours are. So wouldn't it be better to say that God holds us accountable for the bad things we've done to each other, since we are each other's victims, and therefore that Jesus paid for sins between one person and another, rather than between persons and God? 
That would make the suffering of Jesus the substitution for retribution between named persons with the ultimate aim of three-way mutual apology and forgiveness. Wasn't David wrong when he said, against thee, thee only have I sinned? And so haven't theologians like Anselm and Luther and Calvin and Barth also got their emphasis wrong? What do you think? So um, there's an interesting question. Mm. He wants to kick off on that one. Well, I I have a lot of sympathy with this question, to be honest. Um, I think um, I agree with much of of what uh, he's saying. Um, But I think it only works, God forgiving us, uh, because of what uh, is it Alfred is saying <clears throat> it only works God forgiving us if God is the injured party in every hurt it is an injured party if God is so loving of each person so kind of in some ways within each person that a hurt against them is a hurt against him uh, if God is the kind of omni sufferer then um, and Jane may not like this, so it would be interesting. But that then he is the, the one hurt, the one offended against um, in in every wrong action and every wrong thought, um, and that's what makes him able to forgive us. The other thing I find really helpful about this question is that it does um, importantly make us aware that forgiveness is not just about God forgiving me for the particular things that I've done. It is what the whole earth needs. That as a matter of fact, we are in um, extensive, um, systemic, uh, wrong, hurtful, damaging relationships with each other and with the world. Um, And God simply, um, my accepting God's forgiveness for what I've done isn't going to put that right. Um, And so actually this is this reminds us that forgiveness is about the whole huge network of unjust relationships. And one of the things that we say about God is that God holds justice and forgiveness somehow together. Um, So at some point, um, somehow, uh, the things that we have done to each other are also going to be seen in the context of, you know, their knock-on effect for others that we know nothing of. The fact that I um live a, an extremely comfortable life um in um in the well off west it may not be exactly my fault but somebody else somewhere else is suffering so that i can live this kind of life that has to be part of the re reconstitution reconstituting of of the world in god's justice and forgiveness mm. what, sorry came across something in I was reading some um book of Wolfhard Pannenberg 20th century German theologian who was, who was talking about this sort of theme and saying how, how so many of the arguments against the doctrine of the of the atonement come from the sort of deep individualism of yeah. modern life that we think of ourselves as completely individuals that a sin against one person is just a sin against that person there's nothing wider than that and uh, actually the Christian faith has a very different view of reality that we are all part of I think as you were saying Jaina this huge web of relationships which link us not just to each other as human beings but also to the earth upon which we we live and to God who made us and therefore every tiny sin is actually a a kind of un, an unweaving an unraveling of some little bit of that entire network of reality and therefore it's that's why it has cosmic significance mm. and so therefore when i sin against another person when i tell a lie about them when I gossip in their in you know in their 
in their absence when I betray them in some ways. It's not just a sin against that person. It's a sin against something much bigger than that. And it seems to me that, you know, I mean, back to what you were saying, Mike, it seems to me God does us the, 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 the service of, in a sense, standing behind every single person so that a sin against my brother is actually also a sin against God. It's a bit like in the Second World War, or the beginning of the Second World War, when, when and, you know, Britain made that commitment to, to Poland, you know, saying to, to Hitler, look, if you, if you invade Poland, you're invading us, and we will stand behind Poland, and we will, you know, if you sin against, if you, you know, if you take on Poland, you take on us as well. And that led to the Second World War. It's a bit, it's a bit like God does that to every single human being. It's as if he says, you know, to sin against your brother is actually a sin against me. You're not just offending your brother, you're offending me as well because I am committed to that person. They are made in my image and so on. So, yeah. Uh, which Jesus says explicitly in the parable of the sheep and the goats, that which you did yeah. to them, you, you mm. did also unto me, or that which you didn't do to them, you did, didn't do to me. And I think if, if you're um, a poverty-stricken um, grandmother in Burundi whose son was killed in the civil war, whose daughter has died, and you're bringing up 15 grandchildren, several of whom have AIDS, that kind of thing, uh, actually to know that before God you are held and and the injustice of the life that you are forced to live is, is going to be taken into God's account somehow. It's just hugely significant. There are no unimportant people. Um, in, in God's in God's world, mm. and that's precisely because God stands with each person and behind them, yeah. and validates them, so that we we're not able just to sin against one other person. No, they count for much more than that. Uh, I I love um, my favourite twentieth century novel is is called um, Year of Miracle and Grief by Leonid Borodin. Mm. Wonderful kind of folktale come autobiography come surreal work uh, written by a Siberian author who was <coughs> imprisoned for his faith for several years under the communist regime. Um, and there there's an interesting little conversation between a young boy and his mother about why he got punished for breaking the gramophone. Uh, and one of the things he says at that point is, how could you, she said eventually she, she forgave him for doing it, and he said, well, how could you, given that the gramophone remained broken? Mm. <laughs> and I think there's a really important insight there that somehow God's forgiveness of us, and indeed I think our forgiveness of one another, draws on the credit of the coming putting right of all things. The, the reason we can forgive one another, the reason God can forgive us, is ultimately because the things that are broken are not going to stay broken forever. Mm unhealed or unaddressed restoration is possible restoration is possible and that is, is what makes forgiveness possible in some ways yeah. well it seems to me that that's right i mean alfred was quoting david's um statement i think in psalm 51 isn't it where he says you know against thee the only have i sinned and that comes in the context of, of a psalm that comes out of the sin of david against uriah the hittite you know, where he kills him in order to get his wife Bathsheba for for himself, and you know, he then has this deep remorse, and out of that experience comes this comes this psalm. And I suppose what what that reflects is David's deep sense of everything we've been saying that actually a sin against another person is actually much more significant than just having offended someone. 
it's actually a sin against the whole fabric of the universe. It's actually a, an offence against reality. It's an offence against God. And that's why he's he's so overwhelmed with this sense that he hasn't just, you know, um, he hasn't just killed Uriah and, and, and slept with Bathsheba. He's actually offended God. So you think it's a dramatic and slightly over-exaggerated way of saying that, <coughs> rather than a denial that he's sinned yeah, against. I think so. I don't think he's saying that, you know, he's, he's somehow forgotten about Bathsheba and forgotten about Uriah the Hittite. It's almost as if he's so overwhelmed with a sense that this sin is so significant, so big, because it's not just a sin against another person, it's a sin against God, that that's what he's suddenly Con- confronted by. Of. Exactly. Yep. But right. also that, he, it, it, that a sin, all sin, is also um, damaging to us. So we are... Um, damaging the possibilities of becoming the the, the people mm. that mm. God longs mm. for us to be, mm. um, and in you know D- David is a great illustration of that because he carried such a huge, um, uh, God had given him such a huge honor and privilege of being the the king mm. of of Israel, mm. and all that he stood for, and you know um, meant so much to so many people. But that would be the case for each one of us, wouldn't it? Mm. That who we are matters a lot to other people, and when we do something. Um, that lets ourselves down. We are um, offending against what what God longs for us to be, and His creation purposes for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, that is a very interesting question. Thank you, Alfred. And um, we move on to the last one for this time in Godport eighty, which is one from Tony Wilson. And uh, Tony doesn't actually tell us where, where he comes from. I have no idea where Tony Tony's from. But anyway, Tony, if I give your question. And um, the question is about, it's a really interesting one, this is about the frailty of our memories, the nature of our future post-resurrection bodies in eternity. So in our present lives, we all suffer to a greater or lesser extent from memories that are prone to decay, some of us more than others. (laughs) So that was my little aside, not his. Um, In most cases, this is cause for minor annoyance. In some cases, it becomes serious and tragic. In some respects, such as forgetting a distressing event, useful to our well-being. So the first part of the question is whether the frailty of our memory is part of our fallen nature that will not be present in our post-resurrection selves. This leads to a subsequent question about the nature of our memory in our eternal state. If we have a perfect memory throughout eternity, how will we be able to cope? For example, my poor memory allows me to reread a book and enjoy it. With a perfect memory, what will we do once we've read everything that's ever been written? So um, memory. Uh, is a faulty memory... A good thing, a bad thing? Is it part of fallenness, part of creation? Is it a good thing that we we have these things? Uh, will it be part of our future in the resurrection, or will we have perfect memories? I have to say that that I, I absolutely resonate with Tony's fear that, that we might run out of things to read. I can't think of anything worse <laughs> than a world in which there's nothing left to well, read. I think, I think you'll always, there'll always be new books to read because I'm certainly not going to get right into writing mine before I die. <laughs> so, so I'm very much hoping I can keep doing it afterwards. So there will always be new ones being written. I will be writing in eternity. Well, it would just seem like, like that to the readers, probably. Um. I, it's interesting. I, I, Jane um, has said once before that she, uh, with, particularly with detective novels, that uh, quite enjoys reading one again because you've forgotten who'd done it. It's very helpful, isn't it? <laughs> but having said, if I you know, dare to um, disagree with Jane, it seems to me that most of one's reading of literature doesn't depend upon the plot. I mean, I've just reread Jane Austen's Emma. Um, and it wasn't that I'd forgotten what happened. It was just that you notice new things mm. about it. Mm. And you notice new things about it not because you'd forgotten 
what happened last time, but because you're a different person than you were last time you read it. You've had a different set of experiences. You've deepened in all sorts of other relationships and you've had all sorts of other thoughts. Uh, and, and therefore you come to it afresh and you get more from it because it's a great work of art. And therefore, from, from my point of view, I don't think uh, a, a faulty memory, a frail, frail memory, is, is a necess- necessary or good thing. Mm. Um, and nor do I think that having a perfect memory, if that is what we have... Um, would would diminish one's enjoyment. And it's interesting that when you read a book and talk to somebody else about it, that's also a hugely enhancing thing, isn't it? Yes. To actually mm. um, discuss a book with somebody who sees things in it that you mm. didn't see and haven't seen. And um, and so, you know, the thought of heaven being full of book groups mm. is, is quite, <laughs> it's quite a nice idea. For some people it is. For other people it's a vision of hell. <laughs> yes, I suppose that's true. But uh, the but there is also the the point about about memory and how memory constitutes who you are. Um, so I mean that because that is one of the very tragic things about watching somebody suffering from severe dementia, isn't it? Is that they seem to lose so much of who they are, um, and so so somehow this this sense that um, that we are promised that that we are held in God's memory in a way that constitutes who we are hmm. eternally in so God's love. So that isn't lost. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think that's absolutely crucial. I suspect, I mean, this is just a speculation perhaps, but it's not so much that we will remember everything, but that we will have much more control of our memories. In a sense, it's quite important for us actually to be able to forget sometimes because there are experiences we, we have, deeply distressing ones, that we would much rather forget. And there are people who, who are just haunted by memories of things that have happened to them or things that they've done. And it's, it just, I was thinking that text in the scriptures where it says, you know, how God says, I will remember their sins no more. Mm. Mm. As if God chooses to forget sins. And I wonder whether that will be part of our resurrection selves, that ability to forget certain things and that ability to remember other things. So it's not that we will become the sum of all the memories, we, everything that's ever happened to us, because those things that are damaging and, and so on, it says we will be able to forget those things and leave them to one side. Yes, I mean, in a sense, if there's one thing worse than losing your ability to remember, it's, it's having it. Yes, not being <laughs> yeah. able to forget. Not being able to forget. And, yeah. and, and, or rather, I think I, I would talk about there's a phrase in kind of therapeutic circles about the healing of the memories mm. that that those things that currently give us no rest for whatever reason either because of their horror or because uh, of our shame at them mm. will be addressed in and by the love of god and and the example that um, Ruth Stapleton Carter Jimmy Carter's uh, sister wrote in one of her uh, books on the healing of the memories was was that of of Peter's denial, and how interestingly um, John's Gospel sets up uh, the threefold affirmation of Jesus, of Peter's love for Jesus on the beach after the resurrection mm-hmm. as an explicit undoing of or getting right of what went horribly wrong at the threefold mm-hmm. denial. Uh, in both cases it's around a charcoal fire it's the only two times that that word is used in the New Testament it's almost as as if Jesus recreates the scene and says okay now get it right here's a chance to undo that part that thing that has been burning away with shame and regret 
we'll we'll have a chance to lance that boil. And it doesn't then Peter's denial doesn't then get forgotten. No. But it gets transformative, doesn't it? So that the memory of what Peter did enables Peter to be the rock on which the church is built, enables him to be one of Jesus's most important witnesses. Um, and he tells Peter, presumably himself, then tells that story wherever he goes of what yeah. God has done Otherwise for him. Otherwise it wouldn't have got into the Gospels. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I guess with um, this question, I suppose the, the other thing that strikes me about it is... Um, you know, in terms of, of, of memory and, and the future, you know, will heaven be a, a, a or will the, the resurrection state be a endless book club? <laughs> probably, probably, probably not. But oh, what a shame. I was hoping to do a book launch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One day you'll get there, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose that the book that we will read over and over again is, if you like, the the book of God and his character in some ways the focus of attention in the resurrection is not actually... You know, our butterings away in our books, but it's actually the nature of God Himself, and to and to that extent, God never gets boring. You know, the books, even the best books, might at some point get to a point where you've you've kind of seen all the different angles to it and so on. But that's that's never the nature of of God. And I mean, this is the point Gregory of Nyssa makes quite quite often in his his writings that actually there's this endless journeying into God. Um, we never get to the point where we okay we've done God got him understood him let's find something else more interesting it just never gets to that point mm. well also that the, the end of the gospel where he says if everything were told about what Jesus mm. did and said I imagine the world itself could not contain all the books yeah. that would have to be written um, so I'm, I'm hoping that we can we have a, you know, a, planet, a planet full at least that we don't know about yet <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you, Tony, for your question. And thank you for everybody else who's emailed in questions. Um, we've reached the end of Godpod number 80. So thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Lovely. And um, from me, Graham, uh, it's goodbye from all of us. And we'll be back again with Godpod 81 before too long. That was Godpod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.